Hello, I'm Muriel, and I love true crime. I'm Nick, and I am not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. Welcome to Muriel's Murders. Today, we bring you part three of our five-part series on Texas serial killer Henry Lee Lucas, based on a million archived newspaper articles from 40 years ago, and the 2019 Netflix docuseries, The Confession Killer, directed by Robert and Taki Oldham. Last week, we all realized Henry Lee Lucas was really out there doing make ups <laughs> This episode, we witnessed... He did kill. I mean, he's definitely also a serial killer. Yes. He just didn't kill... a. 500,000 people. Right. And that is actually the question of this next episode. How many people did he actually kill? Okay. All right. So this episode, we witness Henry's first capital murder trial and the public crisis of confidence in the Lucas task force, starting with the discovery of a body that was supposed to be lost in the deserts of California and ending with journalist Hugh Ainsworth's explosive series of articles for the Dallas Times Herald. I'm loving this, man. Are you ready? Yeah, man. We're in part three of... This part five, I feel like this is like the Muriel's Murders epic era, you know, these five part epics, like we're just doing it and people seem to be really feeling it. I want to thank everyone who like sends us little comments and it really honestly just makes my day every day. Nick was told me about one that was on Instagram last night. Yeah. And I was like, oh, oh, oh. Uh, thank you so much for uh, <laughs> rocking with us, these big five-parters. We love doing them, and we love it when you share it with your friends and family. We want to thank Nick B. for signing up for the Miro's Murders Patreon. You, too, can be like old Nicky B. and support the show. You sign up. Those dollars help Muriel and I, and you get to unlock 30 exclusive true crime episodes plus two new ones every month. Thank you so much, Nick B. Also, I did mean to say this like months ago at this point, but if you <laughs> want to gift some Someone in your life, a Muriel's Murders Patreon subscription, or you want to ask someone in your life to give you a Muriel's Murders Patreon subscription as a gift, just contact us directly. Uh, the website Patreon doesn't really have that set up, but Muriel and I can arrange a special something for you, come up with a fun little hand-drawn gift card and all that kind of cool stuff. So hit us up if you want that. You can email us, DM us, or just knock on our door if you're already stalking us. Nick, you know? don't say that. We see you out there no. creeping on us. All right. This is a true story <laughs> involving murder, violence, drugs, adult themes, etc. So if any listeners are like Nick and they don't want to hear about those kind of things, just go listen to a different podcast. And we're going to keep joking and cursing basically the exact same that we've done for every episode up until this point so don't act shocked you know right. don't and hit us with the like wow i can't believe you said the f word or and like if you're out here just that. like listening to this podcast uh-huh. starting with episode three <laughs> then you're a wild person then you're wild anyway but so. you need to warn yourself man forget a warning from us look in the mirror all right nikki okay. are you ready to hear this story no okay let's get started the late winter, early spring of 1984 in Texas. Henry Lee Lucas is claiming upwards of 600 murders, 
journalist Hugh Ainsworth yeah. is on to his trifling ass. And Henry <laughs> has an important upcoming trial in April, a death penalty case for the Orange Sox murders. Mm-hmm. That would be Sheriff Jim Boutwell's Golden Goose case and a symbol of closure for the unsolved I-35 murders. Right. And this is like a big time dude who ever, this is the hang out the window and shoot the clock tower guy from his airplane guy, right? Yeah, yeah. And he's like, boom, I got this orange socks, dude. Yeah, exactly. Good recap. I feel like he's not going (laughs) to get it. I feel like he's going to bomb this one. Well, we'll find out. Okay. So the orange socks victim was murdered around Halloween 1979. At the time of our story, the victim was a Jane Doe who went unidentified for 40 years until 2019 when she was finally identified as Deborah Louise Jackson. R.I.P. Deborah had been strangled along I-35, stripped except for her socks, and then thrown over a guardrail off an overpass and into a culvert. The Orange Socks case was one of the very first cases Henry Lee Lucas confessed to in the early days of this whole saga back Mm -hmm. in 1982. He claimed Deborah Jackson was a hitchhiker he'd picked up in Oklahoma City, strangled with his bare hands, and dumped over the guardrail after having sex with her body. And now, Henry was just weeks away from standing trial for capital murder in her death. By now, Henry Lee Lucas had been given several life sentences, but this was his first death penalty case. Mm-hmm. And Henry was starting to wobble. I have a question. What did he get the his life sentences for? He was convicted of murdering Kate Rich okay. and got a life sentence. And he was also convicted of murdering uh, Frida Powell, Becky, okay. and got a life sentence for that. And I think there were a few others, um, but those are the big okay. ones. Okay, okay. So if you remember the last episode, we mm-hmm. talked about how every time... Henry was alone with Hugh Ainsworth, the journalist. He would just kind of lean over and be like, I didn't do it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you know, very sneaky, whatever. <laughs> it's not like Hugh, Hugh Ainsworth did like incredible detective work no, he to was, sniff out this lie. He's like, clearly that's a lie. And then the guy's like, I'm lying. Yeah, he lied. He said he was lying in their very first interview. <laughs> so basically in private, he often brought up the Orange Sox case with Hugh Ainsworth, this ever-present journalist. Yeah. And it happened so often that Ainsworth literally had Henry on tape saying, quote, I didn't kill the girl in the orange socks. I didn't have anything to do with it. I did not do it. And I'll prove it if you want to. Okay. Henry said he wasn't anywhere near Texas during the Orange Sox killing. He was working in Florida at the time. Henry told Ainsworth that he had lied to the Texas Rangers in order to take credit for this murder, that he had been in Jacksonville, Florida, working for a roofing company. But he told the Texas Rangers that he had bribed his foreman to make his work records look like he was in Florida when he really was in Texas murdering Deborah Jackson. Yeah, right. Of course he's saying that. He needs his strawberry milkshake fix. Right, exactly. But now Henry's maybe seeing like that might not have been a strong choice. Uh So he's (laughs) 
<laughs> he tells Ainsworth, if he goes, you know, if you go to Florida in person, you can probably find witnesses that could verify that I was a th- like 1,100 miles away from Texas uh-huh. when Deborah Louise Jackson was murdered. So again, murderers often lie about murdering. And at this point, everything seems so bonkers to Hugh Ainsworth. He wasn't really sure what to believe. He didn't know how many people Henry had actually killed, but the way Henry was talking, Ainsworth decided, fine, he would fly to Florida and see what kind of crazy crap came out of the woodwork next. Yeah. Go ahead. Take the chance, uh-huh. right? So one of the first things that hit Hugh Ainsworth when he touched down in Jacksonville, Florida, was actually Henry's uncanny memory. As Hugh is driving around Jacksonville through Henry's old stomping grounds, he was floored to see how much of Henry's story checked out in little ways. You know, when he said, oh, I used to get my car insurance from, you know, Debbie Brown's car insurance uh, on first out. It was years ago. Yeah, yeah. And he was describing take a ride at the lamppost, uh, like that kind of stuff. Totally. So anyway, this was the biggest thing that Ainsworth found out in Florida. In 1979, Henry was living with Otis Toole in Jacksonville, Florida, and worked consistently at Southeast Color Coat as a roofer. Henry's old foreman showed Ainsworth 14 months worth of detailed records of Henry working regular hours at Southeast Color. The foreman said Mm -hmm. he had already been visited by folks from the Lucas task force who had come into the company and accused him of taking bribes from Henry to falsify these work records to show he was in town when he really wasn't. Uh And the foreman was totally baffled. It kind of came out of left field. And he was like, what are you talking about? Nothing about the bribe scheme made sense to him. He was Mm -hmm. just technically, there wasn't really a way to do that. And he said, oh, I had just gotten this job and I was really trying to be a great foreman and I was young and there's no way I would have taken a bribe. (laughs) Like the whole thing seemed very out there. Sure. And then there was the ShopRite grocery where Henry told Ainsworth he used to cash his paychecks every week. So Ainsworth heads over and the store is still there. And so was the clerk who used to cash the paychecks, uh-huh. <laughs> who also happened to be the owner and happened to still have the signed pay stubs from 1979 in his record. So this fool is definitely in Florida. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean. And the cops know it, but they're still going through with this this murder charge. I will say right now. Yeah. I'm taking a hard line. This is a very fun story to write. Uh-huh. But even as of today, uh-huh. they're not acknowledging that that's true. Oh, really? Yeah. So there's this is not like there is like very <laughs> legitimate people who exist uh-huh. in this world today in law enforcement who say he made up like he forged all these documents gotcha. and in Florida. But okay. this is what Ainsworth found. And we're just going to tell this this story from Ainsworth's perspective because he was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize for his stuff. And I don't even know what the other guys are doing. Yeah. Did you get the Pulitzer <laughs> for policing? Huh, sir? <laughs> Officer? I am joking. Clearly, I don't know any of the people involved. <laughs> I've literally never heard of this until you told me just now. So, All right. All right. <laughs> yeah. So the ShopRite guy, also for the record, had never been contacted by anyone from law enforcement. No task force members. No one. Gotcha. So his record showed that Henry had cashed a paycheck in person at the ShopRite on October 29th, 
1979, just hours before Deborah Louise Jackson was estimated to be murdered. Mm. And work records showed that he was on the job site at Southeast Color Coat on October 31st, 1979, making a very strong case that Henry was probably telling the truth. Uh-huh. So Hugh Ainsworth flies back to Texas to tell Sheriff Boutwell what he had found. And according to Ainsworth, Boutwell just blanked him. It had already, <laughs> he's, he's just like, it had already been proven. Yeah. Henry's work records were, were forged. End of story. I don't know why you're yeah, here, Yeah, we have dude. the confession. Oh, what? Now he's saying he didn't do it? Right. <laughs> so there was no entertaining of mm-hmm. the shop right situation or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And Hugh is just standing there like, oh, <laughs> Oh no, this thing is totally off the rails, right? Mm-hmm. There's no good faith investigation. Mm-hmm. And Ainsworth just decides to keep digging, right? So he he leaves Spoutwell and he goes out to branch out beyond the specifics of the Orange Sox case and just look over the details of some other cases to see what else has been going on. And that also very much disturbed him. So looking through the transcripts of the cases, he saw case after case where Henry was coming up with a fraction of the information is in his confessions on his own. Instead, he was being heavily coached yeah. by whoever was talking to him. Sure. Ainsworth also found another disturbing detail. According to everything he found in Florida, including interviews with Otis Tool's friends and family, it was very clear that Henry met Otis in February 1979, but Ainsworth was finding dozens of cases where Henry had implicated Otis spanning four years before Henry even met Otis Tool. I was going to ask, because Otis is up here... Uh, confessing to all this stuff too yeah so it's really like that was that's one of the kind of verifiable things Uh uh-huh is that like that timeline was really squishy henry said it was one year he met otis and said it was another year yeah and so the task force kind of took the time frame that made the most sense for the killings but not the time frame that made most sense for all of the evidence that they had never met until 1979. Mm-hmm. There's even some murders that have been cleared under Otis and like the Otis and Henry banner when Otis Tool was in federal prison. Because remember, he was in federal prison until 1977. Right. Ainsworth also started finding lawmen in other states and jurisdictions who just flat out refused to accept any Lucas confession. Basically, they said when Ainsworth called them, they mm-hmm. said, well, the task force brought Henry into town to tour these different murder sites and help us with these investigations. And he just was kind of a clown. He didn't know anything and it was really awkward. Yeah. <laughs> and so there were certain people, they were being very quiet, but they were saying, we don't, we don't talk right. to okay. him. We yeah, don't accept yeah. these confessions. So the there's a bunch of people has. who wanted those confessions to clear their caseload. And then there was a bunch that was like, nah, we don't believe that guy at yeah, all. Yeah, right. Uh-huh. And so now Ainsworth is seeing this larger pattern and picture of what's happening. 
Okay, so now there's still this looming orange socks trial. So Hugh Ainsworth decided to go to Henry's legal team and just tell them what he learned in Florida. Again, he's like, I don't know how many people Henry killed, but I'm pretty sure he didn't kill orange socks. Mm -hmm. Henry's lawyers listen to Ainsworth. They go and confront Henry with this new information. And Henry comes back with an answer that surprises everyone. Henry says he lied about the Orange Sox case because he was trying to commit legal suicide to atone for killing Frida Powell, a.k.a. Becky. Right. He's like, they gave me life, but I'm going to confess to this so they'll kill me. Yeah, but there's also a twist. Okay. He said if he killed himself, he wouldn't get into heaven so he could be with Becky. So he had tricked God and created a loophole by having the state do it. Oh, wow. <laughs> so this was not the answer uh-huh. that anyone expected. Uh-huh. And then his legal team was at a total loss. Like uh-huh. they weren't going to say that in court. And they didn't have any frame of reference for how to start to put together a defense <laughs> when you have somebody who won't testify on their own behalf and is doing something that it, it was just way beyond the scope of what they were prepared to have to deal with. So he is saying, I lied. I didn't kill this woman, but I want to be found guilty and sentenced to death for a good reason. Yes. So he could just keep his mouth shut and get sentenced to death and then he would be in heaven by his logic, but he wants to tell everyone that he's up to all these schemes. He's not going to keep his mouth shut and also his reasons are going to change over time. So, you know, Uh this man, he's he's just going off. Mm -hmm. So the legal team is scrambling to deal with this new set of information and they decide to do two things. One, fly to Florida to see if they could find witnesses to back up Ainsworth's claims and testify and then two have a meeting with Sheriff Batwell and Henry together try to kind of figure this out so during the jury selection part of the trial Henry's legal team or half of them flew to Florida confirmed what Ainsworth found gathered together some witnesses to testify including Otis Toole obviously Otis Tool's testimony would be instrumental to piecing together a timeline of Henry's 1979 movements because they were living together in Jacksonville that year. Unfortunately, Otis Tool was at the slam dunk they were hoping for. Henry's lawyer, Parker McCullough, found Otis Tool in the Duval County Jail wearing a tight T-shirt with a cartoon bunny on it that read Happy. And after interviewing him, said Otis was just about as dumb as it gets. <laughs> so rough, man. <laughs> and looking at old footage of Henry and Otis confessing together made it worse. Uh-huh. Like the two would play off of each other. But Otis would sort of gape at Henry until Henry started first. And then they were just off. They described the murders kind of piling on whatever the last person said. Uh Like, yeah, yeah. Then the devil would take me and I'd pour blood on the ground. And the other guy would be like, yeah. And then I'd taste the blood like a cannibal. Oh, yeah. And then some of it tastes like barbecue with sauce on it. Yeah. And then Otis started making up stories about barbecuing people and eating them. So for this. Are you just getting like improv class flashbacks? 
I um this is a loose transcription of what they were talking about in this video. It's legit like that's what they were it's saying. It's just a straight up improv exercise. Right. But this and then for this defense lawyer, it's yeah. maybe the first time his eyes have been on this type of stuff. So he's like, Oh man, this guy this seems so goofy. Like so many murders were cleared on these testimonies. And then you have these excerpts of like, yeah, yeah. And then I barbecued him. <laughs> you know? Like, but did you have sex with him? Oh, I had sex with him real good. And then the whole thing, they were giggling at the end of one of the clips. And Otis was like, yeah, I did murders with you, didn't I? And they're talking about it like <laughs> oh that. Freaking frack, man. Just housing strawberry milkshakes. <laughs> There's also this moment that I just want to tell you about. I'm not sure why, but at one point at the end of one of their joint interviews, Henry started quietly crying after they had been laughing and all this kind of stuff. And mm -hmm. Otis went over and wiped the tears off of Henry's face mm -hmm. and then held his face in his hands and told Henry how much he meant to him. Mm -hmm. Like in a really tender moment they kept each other's pictures in their jail cells too right like they even though they were way far away from each other they still had this sort of intimate relationship yeah that was the whole thing too they were like hooking up or they were lovers or something and like i did did that was that real did they just throw that in because people wanted to hear that from them or seems like maybe that was real i think you know there's always issues because Henry is lying uh -huh. a lot. So it's really hard to know exactly what was going on. Right. But there, we'll talk about this later, I think, a lot in episode five about his life. Mm -hmm. But from all accounts who knew them, they lived together as a couple for a year or mm -hmm. more and were really, really close. So mm -hmm. I don't think. That part probably wasn't a lie. That wasn't not the same as like, well, then we barbecued them and drank their blood, like that kind of stuff. So, you like, know. Yeah, and then we kissed on his birthday under the full moon. Right, exactly. <laughs> so back in Texas, Henry and his legal team sat down with Sheriff Boutwell to talk about their concerns. Mm -hmm. The meeting was videotaped, and in an excerpt, Henry's lawyers explained to Boutwell that Henry felt like he wasn't allowed to stop confessing. In this meeting, Henry gets a little worked up saying he's making everything up. He starts crying, saying he can't stop himself. He basically seems like he's on the, the verge of a nervous breakdown. And Boutwell said, well, you know, Henry, maybe something inside you just needs to come out. That's why you're upset. And he tells Henry to relax. He offers him some TV privileges uh, and he offers him some anxiety medication. And that was kind of it for their big meeting where the lawyers could see not only was Boutwell not going to entertain mm -hmm. the evidence, he was not going to acknowledge that Henry was saying, I didn't do these murders. Yeah. And it did come down to like, hey, man, calm down. You don't know him like I do. Yeah. He's just freaking out. He just needs to calm down. Yeah. Throw on some howdy doody. Take a Xanax. Freaking... Come home to Papa. That's what it was. You know, <laughs> yeah, right? On. It's like his. What's it like his daddy or whatever? Yeah, yeah. there's a lot going on. Uh huh. The Orange Dogs trial began on April second, nineteen eighty four. Basically, the prosecution relied solely on Henry's confession to their murder. They had no other evidence. They just showed three taped confessions from Henry claiming to have murdered Deborah Louise Jackson. 
Henry's team objected to the tapes, telling Henry, quote, you're talking yourself into a very possible death penalty. And Henry's response was, hey, I already tried to kill myself, so they ain't going to do nothing but kill me for me. And that was the end of the story. Mm -hmm. The defense brought in witnesses from Florida, like the roofing company foreman who testified that not only did he have records of Henry working, but actually remembered him being there on that day at the job site. Mm -hmm. They also called Sheriff Boutwell to testify, who admitted under oath that he had to refresh Henry's memory several times during his initial questioning in the Orange Sox case. Boutwell said initially Henry couldn't remember where he dumped her body. He couldn't remember her hair color or even the time of year in 1979 that he allegedly killed her. So the murder happened in October and he couldn't say it happened in the spring, the summer, the fall or anything. And you've got all these different people interrogating him being like, wow, he's got an incredible memory. (laughs) But Batwell stood by his interview tactics as mm-hmm. legit. Mm-hmm. He did not see that as a mistake. Okay. Otis did not end up being asked to testify. I'm not sure why, but my guess is because they thought he would do more harm than good. I mean, that's such a key witness that yeah, that had to be a there had to be a significant reason why they didn't ask him, but they didn't ask him. Mm-hmm. Henry's legal team tried to get Henry to take the stand, but he refused. And his lawyers were pretty convinced Sheriff Boutwell had spooked him into silence. Later, Hugh Ainsworth said that he was with Henry and Sheriff Boutwell in the courtroom hallway during a recess. And he said Henry just grinned at Boutwell and said, you know, I didn't do this one, Jim. And Boutwell was like, well, you should have said something earlier. (laughs) And they're joking, (laughs) right? And smiling. Uh uh But Ainsworth is just like, what? is going on. (laughs) Henry Lee Lucas was convicted fairly quickly without any evidence other than his confession and sentenced to death. Mm. But he didn't get transferred to death row. He went straight back to Georgetown to keep working with the task force. By now, Hugh Ainsworth was being shunned by the task force. Sheriff Boutwell called Hugh personally to tell him that Henry didn't want to see him anymore, which is a kind of creepy way to say I'm mad at you. And also not true. Henry was totally fine with Ainsworth. Well, I like, too, that he's not like, hey, man, don't come around anymore. Like he's like he could say, I don't want don't come around here. If you come around here, I'm going to throw you know, staples it into your eyeballs or something. But instead he's like, don't come Henry doesn't, Henry doesn't, Henry doesn't want to see you anymore. But all that meant was that Hugh had to sneak in to see Henry on the weekends when the big dogs were relaxing at home. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Ainsworth claimed during this time when he was coming in on these weekends, Henry was stressed and felt Hugh was the only person he could trust because everyone had started to get way more aggressive about getting his confessions since the trial. But it was also really tense. He felt like he was almost in a game of chicken with everyone. People seemed like they were catching on to him making stuff up, but he was like, nobody's acknowledging it. So it just feels, it's not as fun anymore as it used to be. totally. But even then, Ainsworth said Henry didn't seem to grasp the gravity of the situation. Like, he thought if it really came down to it, he could still turn the ship around, that all he needed was a truth serum or a polygraph test, and he could prove himself innocent 
and get off the hook for his hundreds of confessions. Like he just is like, well, I made it up. So right. I'll just say I made it yeah, up. Yeah, It's like, dude, you've been convicted. Yeah. You're going to the death chambers. Eventually, Hughes' conversations with Henry became kind of circular and unproductive, and Hughes stopped visiting, opting instead to start his independent research on Henry's life from 1975 to 1983. In May 1984, just about a month after the Orange Sox trial, Otis Toole lost his first capital murder case as well and was sentenced to death for burning down a boarding house with a boarder named George Sonnenberg inside. Oh. Otis went to death row <sighs> while Henry Lee Lucas went on tour. Uh-huh. After his conviction in the Orange Sox murder, Henry hit the road with Sheriff Beltwell. He flew to Louisiana to confess to 30 murders and tour the murder sites. And then he toured some murder sites in California and confessed to 15 more killings. He had rock star demands too, like having a TV in his holding cell and like different <laughs> requirements for his traveling. Keep those Xanax coming, you know? <laughs> and then someone found the body of Carolyn Cervenka. 19-year-old Carolyn Cervenka had disappeared without a trace in early June 1982, after leaving an Austin community college in the family's 1977 Oldsmobile, Henry confessed to Cervenka's murder, describing her clothes and jewelry in perfect detail, and told investigators he had killed her and dumped her body in California. Well, in July of 1984, a few months after he'd been convicted in the Orange Sox killing, the Oldsmobile was found in a creek in Taylor, Texas, with Carolyn's skeletal remains inside and no signs of foul play. A month or so... Wait, no f signs of foul play? Like she had... A month okay. or so before she disappeared... Carolyn had had an epileptic seizure for the first time. And it looked like Carolyn more than likely suffered another seizure after leaving her classes, drove off the road into the, tr into the creek and drowned. Oh, that's sad. RIP. Yeah. So that left some people scratching their heads, right? Like clearly her body wasn't in California. <laughs> and if Henry didn't actually kill Carolyn, yeah. how did he know so much about what she was Wearing. Right. What a head scratcher. Uh -huh, okay. Uh -huh. The next to have a head scratcher with Henry Lee Lucas and the task force was Linda Irwin. Linda Irwin was the first woman hired to the Dallas Police Department and in, I think, to the homicide department. And in 1984, she was a 27 year veteran homicide detective. Henry had drawn a couple pictures of two women he said he killed in Dallas. And Detective Irwin wanted to have an interview with him. She had heard about these drawings and wanted mm -hmm. to see what was up. Her first side eye was when she called Georgetown to set up an appointment and they told her to bring Henry a carton of Pall Malls as a gift. She's <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, you're supposed to be the person here. What's going on? <laughs> At her meeting with Henry in Georgetown, uh -huh. Detective Irwin just let Henry talk. And surprisingly... Given a lot of free reign, Henry confessed to 10 additional murders in Dallas, so 12 women in total. But 
Nothing Henry was saying matched any open or cold case in Dallas. And Detective Irwin was mighty suspicious. (laughs) So Linda Irwin. (laughs) I know she's a homicide detective, but it really takes a freaking genius to really be like, that's not a murderer. (laughs) Apparently. (laughs) So she left the meeting with this feeling like Henry hadn't done a damn thing in Dallas. Uh So she goes back to Dallas and she tells her supervisors about these doubts. And they're like, I hear you really. Okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to put together a bogus case file (laughs) just to see what he does to Uh trick him, Uh which she felt kind of like, ethically not great about Uh she's like fine whatever so detective Irwin threw together a case file with fake information fake photos like pulled from other cases whatever she didn't tell the Texas Rangers or Sheriff Boutwell that they faked the file she just wanted to see what Henry would do Uh and of course true to form he confessed to everything in the file apparently his 13th Dallas murder Uh uh-huh Great. I love this guy. So he's just confessing to every murder, every missing person in the whole country. And just think about like... It's like a hoarder. He's like a hoarder. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Yeah. You think about too, this year is so crazy. So we're talking about a calendar year right now Mm -hmm. between the spring of 1984 and these things just kind of keep piling up Mm -hmm. and then all through the year we go to the spring of 1985 and that's when Hugh Ainsworth's article comes out right so these are just little like needles on the haystack kind of packing up right totally needles on the haystack I think I really I said needles on the haystack kind of packing up (laughs) (laughs) I've been writing for like three days (laughs) <laughs> I'll be here like looking at stuff just metaphors that I read and I'm like what I'm just erasing everything that makes no sense <laughs> you know what I mean yeah. straw that broke the camel's back whatever okay. it is mm-hmm. okay so now despite the orange socks conviction a few police departments are quietly dropping their cases against Henry doubt is sneaking in then the Lemons family went public with their own issues with Henry Lee Lucas and the task force. And this is pretty significant because this is the first real high profile stand that a victim's family took against the task force. I'm sorry, force. who's the family? The Lemons family. So we'll talk about them. We haven't okay. talked about them. Oh, okay, okay. Bob and Joyce Lemons' daughter, 18-year-old Deborah Sue Williamson, was murdered August 24th, 1975 Ooh. in Lubbock, Texas. Uh-huh. Debbie had just driven home from a family dinner for her stepdad Bob's birthday. When she got home, she was stabbed 18 times in the head, face, and neck. Oh, my God. And this is a teeny little town. Yeah. It's a really, um, obviously, always going to be a horrific, obscene crime, but it was just really out of nowhere. Yeah. Absolutely devastating. And it didn't stop with Debbie's murder. Debbie had been married really young. Mm -hmm. Um, She had just been married. So she was married when she was 18, fresh out of high school. But after she was murdered, her family, like her mom and dad and her little sisters were targeted. In what way? After her death, the family started getting death threats. Someone burglarized their house. Debbie's little sisters had to be pulled out of school because the school said they couldn't guarantee their safety. And then the Lubbock police said, 
you know, we can't really protect you 24 seven. We, we can't really protect your family at all. So the lemons changed their phone number and they moved to Gainesville, Texas to live anonymously. Oh, they, wow. they couldn't figure out how to That's horrible. stop it. Yeah. Debbie's case went cold until nine years later when Bob Lemons got a phone call from the Lubbock Police Department. They had a signed confession. Henry Lee Lucas had admitted to killing his daughter. Uh-huh. In May 1984, the Lemons made the drive back to Lubbock for the first time in almost a decade to pick up a copy of the confession. But upon reading it, they immediately see it's just all wrong. Mm -hmm. So hoping it was a transcription mistake, they were allowed to listen to the confession tape. And Henry's story was almost word salad to them. He had the wrong color house. He said he had entered the home through a a door that the Lemons knew was had been permanently sealed Uh shut. Henry said he had chased Debbie through the house, then raped and murdered her in a bedroom. Debbie had been killed out in her carport there wasn't a drop of blood in the house and she hadn't been sexually assaulted yeah henry said she he had stole a bunch of expensive jewelry from the house and the only thing that was missing was debbie's wedding album from her wedding just a few months earlier that's the only thing the killer took weird yeah super weird so creepy i mean it's just horrible and then he he i don't know whoever it is terrorizes this poor family afterwards yeah and you know i'm gonna hopefully get into some of this in episode five. Uh-huh. But just for the record, way later, there's a, an organization that deals with cold cases and their profile of who the killer was was obviously someone who knew yeah. Debbie very well. Sounds like it kind of, Right, I, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's a frenzied personal killing. It's super violent. And then the only thing they take is this very sentimental item. Right. right? So anyways, this family's like, clearly this is, this is confession. Is right. BS. After a decade of just like horrific yeah. sadness, right? Yeah. After waiting for so many years for their daughter's case to be closed, the confession was like a slap in the face. The mm-hmm. Lemons had no idea who killed their daughter, but they were certain it wasn't Henry Lee Lucas. The task force was claiming that in August 1975, right after being released from prison in Michigan, on August 22nd, Lucas traveled 1,300 miles straight to the middle of nowhere at the end of I-27 where the interstate ends, it just vanishes, to Lubbock, Texas to randomly murder Deborah Sue Williamson on August 24th. So the whole thing seemed really out there. It's not even a pass-through city. That's yeah. what they talk about. It's like mm-hmm. a lot of mm-hmm. these mm-hmm. interstates have right. these killings because you drive through and get to another part of this, the yeah. country, but it just stops in Lubbock. So then you'd have to turn around and drive back. Mm-hmm. When the Lemons confronted law enforcement, like the Lubbock PD and the task force with these inconsistencies, they were totally stonewalled and shut down. So they did their own investigation that summer. The Lemons contacted Henry Lee Lucas's family in Maryland and Pennsylvania, and they'd found out he'd gone straight to stay with them after his release from prison. There's even a plane and a bus ticket proving that he went to Perryville, Maryland. While the family's busy trying to put this investigation together, just three weeks after the confession, Lucas was indicted on murder charges in Debbie's murder despite the strong public opposition from the family. 
So after this months-long private investigation, the Lemons were sure they had enough evidence to show Henry Lee Lucas was not in Texas when their daughter was killed. They were also very surprised to find out that none of the people they spoke to from Henry's life had been contacted by an investigator. No one from the Texas Rangers, the task force, or the Lubbock PD had talked to any of the family members that took care of him after he was released from prison. Yeah. So the family took everything to Georgetown to present to the task force and the Texas Rangers in the fall of 1984. So that's about six months after he was convicted of the Orange Sox killing. It was a hostile meeting that ended with Sergeant Bob Prince telling the family he had no interest in discussing their investigation and to go back to Lubbock and essentially kicking them out of his office. So there are a couple things at play here. Mm -hmm. One of them is like to remember that the task force really holds fast to this idea that they're not an investigative task force. They're just a coordinating task force. So they're frustrated at being blamed if investigations go sideways, Mm -hmm. even though they're helping to facilitate these <laughs> meetings and confessions. It just seems like an all-you-can-eat buffet of getting your your, your cases cleared. Yeah, or yeah, yeah. Getting your cake and eating it, too. It could be like, hey, I think he did this one. Oh, great. We're not saying he did. Yeah. Or whatever. I don't yeah. really, you know, it's kind of squishy. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is, is that the lemons were pretty angry about everything they really did go to the press and talk to them which was something that the task force was really anti about sure sure really upset at at getting criticized and so that was part of like the tension in the room in lubbock debbie's case was not officially closed but the lemons were told that investigators believed they had solved the case with henry's confession and then that was it it was done Hmm. This is so interesting. I feel like we're learning who Henry is not. Yeah. That's kind of what it's like. It's like this this whole epic is a little different. Like you're taking a little bit of a different, um, you know, it's like a sleight of hand a little bit. That's cool. Yeah. You're the one who's doing it. Well, I was feeling kind of insecure about it because usually it's fun to talk about somebody's life beforehand. Uh huh. And we're going to do it in episode five. (laughs) (laughs) I was three episodes in before I was like, maybe that was a dumb idea, but we're doing it. We're locked in, baby. No, I like this. This is this is cool. This is like uh, you know we're learning what the public thinks of this guy. Yeah, we're learning it in real time. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And then there was Waco District Attorney Vic Fiesel. In 1984, Vic got a call from the task force. Henry had confessed to three unsolved murders in the Waco area, and Vic was totally excited and open about that, saying it was a gift for a newly elected DA. Aside from getting justice for the families, clearing murder cases, especially cases connected to a high-profile killer like Henry Lee Lucas, was really great for elected officials. Mm -hmm. It gave them high visibility during a win, something that earned votes, and because it was a confession... Vic didn't have to do any work, you know? It just kind of (laughs) dropped in his lap. Uh But when Vic actually took a look at the cases, the whole thing seemed off. And time would prove that his gut was right. There were three cases, the murders of Dorothy Collins, Rita Salazar, and Glenn Parks. In the case of Dorothy Collins, 
investigators had a prime suspect already who was on the verge of confessing. And actually, Henry's confession messed up this investigation so bad to the point where it was never solved. This murder is still cold. Oh, whoa. In the case of Glenn Parks, Henry Lee Lucas claimed Otis Toole shot the man to death. And then later, it was found out that Otis was in prison in Florida when Glenn was murdered and the confession was rejected. And as for Rita Salazar, this was actually a pretty major cold case from the area. She and her boyfriend had ran out of gas on this now infamous stretch of I-35, which is the same highway where Orange Sox was murdered. Yeah. And her boyfriend, Frank Kevin Key, was found on a county road shot nine times. And then Rita was found about 75 miles away from him near I-5, right next to I-5 in a ditch outside of Waco. She had been shot six times and her purse was missing. Her murder was actually solved decades later through DNA testing leading to the conviction of Benny Tiarina Jr. So that case was actually solved. Mm -hmm. But in 1984, Vic Fiesel couldn't tell the future. He just had a gut feeling that Henry's confessions were off. They were on the brink of solving the murder of Dorothy Collins. So Vic decided to just focus on the Parks and Salazar cases. Now, we're in the pre-internet days, so Vic Wiesel had a sheriff's deputy sit in the basement on a computer and comb through criminal records from Texas state and national databases to see if he could find an alibi for Henry Lee Lucas on the nights of the murders. And these are databases that are like a closed system, so it's not like the internet. They're just shared Databases that make sense. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay, good. I don't know that much about databases. I mean, so. I don't. Do you think I know anything about that? You say database, and I'm like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I just want to be like, I think I understand. Yeah, it's like a big ass filing cabinet. Exactly, you know? but it's in computers. Uh huh. <laughs> yep. So the deputy started tracking Henry's whereabouts through traffic tickets and little jail stays and things like that, and he came up with about a dozen dates that conflicted with murder cases that the task force had already cleared. So this is an obvious shocker, big red flag. It's not exactly what they're looking for, but it looks really suspicious. And it's enough reason to keep on digging. But later, when they tried to pull up more data on Henry, they just got a big old access denied message. Someone from some law enforcement agency was in the database blocking access to Henry's criminal records in real time. Mm -hmm. Just opening up that file cabinet and dumping ink all over certain <laughs> certain chunks of it. Right. And that's like obviously really freaky. And this is something that nobody has. This is Vic Fiesel's account uh -huh. along with this deputy. Right. Uh -huh. So I have to say that that is what's true. But yeah, they might not just had the password. Yeah, maybe. You know, maybe their computer was unplugged. Maybe there was some sort of crazy reason. Maybe it wasn't nefarious at all. But it scared Vic Fiesel enough uh -huh. that he was like, something is really, really bad is happening. So he is scared, but obviously believes he has to keep going with digging into these cases. And into 1985, he hooks up with Hugh Ainsworth, who's working with reporter Jim Henderson on a series of articles for the Dallas Times-Herald on Henry Lee Lucas and the work of the task force. 
So after speaking with Ainsworth, Vic Fiesel decided to take some action. In the spring of 1985, Vic Fiesel announced that he was impaneling a grand jury to investigate the murders of Rita Salazar and Glenn Parks and also Henry's confessions and the work of the task force and the Texas Rangers that elicited the confessions. Mm -hmm. So there's a big scope to this grand jury. Of course, there's a lot of drama. Vic Fiesel got a warrant to take Henry from the Rangers and Sheriff Beltwell in Georgetown and down to Waco to testify. The task force tried to deny the transfer, like the deputy from Waco showed up and they were, weren't going to give him Henry. Mm-hmm. Boutwell had an absolute public fit, but in the end, Vic Fiesel won. And then, just days after the grand jury trial began in Waco, Hugh Ainsworth dropped the mic with his Pulitzer Prize-nominated series on Henry Lee Lucas. Sunday, April 14th, 1985, the Dallas Times-Herald ran a multi-article piece written by Ainsworth and Jim Henderson titled Mass Murderer or Massive Hoax. Mm-hmm. So I could not find this article anywhere. It was really, <laughs> really? hard. Yeah, this like series That's of articles. anticlimactic. But I found it. I did find oh, did. it. I uh, found the articles uh-huh. on Reddit, on uh-huh. Unresolved Mysteries, that subreddit. It was uh-huh. posted by user J Tiger Tail, and it was the only copy I could find, surprisingly, which is might be more of a testament to my research skills <laughs> than like a mysterious reason. Yeah, you and the, the guy from Waco were just like, yeah, it's just... We're getting our access denied. <laughs> nope. Mm-mm. But Jay Tigertail uh-huh. absolutely rocks with her collection of primary sources on this case. It's amazing. Uh-huh. Very cool person doing, you know, something cool on the internet. Yep, cool. So I'm going to give you a quick highlight reel, the greatest hits, because we're talking about a pretty long article series. I'm just going to give you the best little morsels that I, I found. to yeah, be. Yeah, and you've already given us a pretty good idea of what this dude's up to. Right, exactly. Yeah. So we'll start out with the premise. Ainsworth and Henderson went into this investigation thinking they would be able to prove Henry didn't commit maybe 10 or 15 of the murders. In the end, they found evidence that contradicted Henry's confessions in over 200 cleared murder cases. <laughs> so That's it's a all huge... they needed to say is 200. I mean, the scope of this was huge, yeah. the amount of research that they did. Yeah. Henry Lee Lucas claimed to be the most prolific serial killer in U.S. history. In the two years after killing Kate Rich, he'd confessed to over 600 killings and assisted law enforcement in closing something around 210 murders. But based on this investigation, including hardcore deep dives into records, over 100 interviews with people affected, and then hours and hours and hours of interviews with Lucas, mm-hmm. Hugh and Jim found that Lucas probably only killed three people, his mom, Frida Powell, and Kate Rich. Mm. And they found the task force actually had evidence that could have exonerated Henry, but they either hit it or just didn't investigate it. They did things like refusing to admit literal prison records or employment records were accurate if they conflicted with their stories. There was one bit where they tried to say, well... You know, the prison records were burned in a fire. So even though in several places it says Henry was released on this certain date, we could we can't know for sure, right? Mm-hmm. Say stuff like that. 
I don't know why that's funny. It's just, just like, like everyone's just like, yeah, no, those those files are we they uh, they spilled spaghetti on it. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's just spaghetti sauce all over it. So can't all, even read that part. <laughs> so all two hundred and something cases were closed based solely on Henry's confessions. No physical evidence. No eyewitnesses, and in many cases in direct conflict with records of his physical location at the time of the killing, like a state away mm-hmm. or sometimes thousands of miles away. And that was the main heft of these articles. Mm-hmm. For instance, the Rangers have on record that Lucas applied for unemployment in person on October 1st, 1982 in Illinois, but they also credit him with a murder a thousand miles away in Texas on the same day. Or in 1975, when owners of a mushroom farm in Pennsylvania had a record of Henry Lee Lucas picking up his check in person on the same day he's credited for another murder in Texas. And in that case, Pennsylvania law enforcement actually took those work records and sent them to the task force to say, hey, guys, just by the way, he was here. Mm -hmm. And all of that information was just ignored. Right. For most of 1980 to 1981, Henry was in Jacksonville, Florida, selling scrap metal to Commercial Metals, Inc., like over 100 sales made in person with full accounting of his name and the date and whatever. And these sales, for instance, conflict with a bunch of murder dates. There are also records of collect calls and wire transfers between Henry and Reuben Moore, a Pentecostal preacher from episode one, proving that Henry was in Indiana and Missouri in October of 1982 during the dates he was supposedly killing people in New Mexico and Texas. You know, it's crazy just to think about like pre-internet and pre tracking fools on their GPS through the phones or whatever. Yeah. I, it's kind of unbelievable that there was all of these, like that not all the files had spaghetti spilled all over them and burnt, that they were able to track people down and records were kept and all that. That seems unbelievable to me. Yeah. I don't know why, yeah. but it just seems like, really? They could really prove all of that and they had a date at a mushroom farm where he picked up a check or something we're gonna kind of get into this a little bit but Uh that's also i kind of skipped over that in our this retelling of these Uh articles but that is a piece of it is that a huge part of this was like he's a drifter Mm -hmm. there's no way to know where he went right sounds like they tracked him pretty damn good he had a really huge footprint in paperwork he just was signing Paychecks, like he really, in terms of being a drifter, yeah. it's like he there was so much documentation that followed him around. And that was part of what was so surprising about this investigation. It's like this yeah. drifter, right. you know, really did have so many things tethering him to specific locations. Well, it's funny too, because I'm sitting here like, whoo, I'm, I'm off the grid. Like, there's no way they could track me that good. But of course they could. Of course, <laughs> there's a million things I've done, you know? Like this podcast. Like this freaking <laughs> podcast. Like everything. Thing I've ever done. I know. That's funny that you think that. I'm just like, oh yeah, I'm like sneaky. I'm a ghost. You don't even know about me. Lord. You know? Anyway, so these examples, they go on and on and on. You get it. Mm-hmm. The article alone gives like a dozen examples of these types of contradictions. And then there was the idea that Henry being a drifter was an adequate excuse for the literal batshit breakneck pace 
that he committed this these murders. <laughs> it's like with. the speed racer of the drifter community. Right. He had to be like a Mad Max racing around uh-huh. the country to commit the volume of murders in the locations that he claimed. So the scope of Ainsworth and Henderson's investigation spans from 1975 to 1982. One of the most crucial time periods was the year of 1978, during which the task force claimed Henry teamed up with Otis Tool, killed 24 people in 13 states. Now, there were some overarching problems with this premise. Like there is a pretty well-documented period in 1978 when Henry was living with a woman named Rhonda Knuckles and living in West Virginia. And the big one was there was absolutely no evidence that Henry Lee Lucas met Otis O'Toole before February 1979. Mm-hmm. That was a huge, you know, conflicting <laughs> piece of this. Yeah. But yeah, that's I would say that's a pretty big one. <laughs> but Henry's whereabouts were still vague. There were still some gaps in this time period, times when Henry was not accounted for. But Thankfully, that was mitigated by the fact that the task force's timeline was comically impossible. Mm -hmm. Like only Superman, Santa Claus, or some sort of methamphetamine-fueled Jason Bourne (laughs) could have pulled off the 1978 Lucas killing spree. Uh (laughs) For instance, like six killings and an attempted kidnapping between October 2nd and November 2nd in 1978 were attributed to Henry Lee Lucas and cleared. Based on the locations of the murders and Lucas's confessed timeline, he would have had to drive 11,000 miles in one month in a 1965 Ford station wagon thousands of miles between the killings and 4,000 alone in the last four days of the spree. So to do that, mm-hmm. he would have had to been driving 50 miles an hour constantly without stopping at any red lights or anything, sleeping or using the bathroom, or he would have had to drive like a bat out of hell to be able to stop at red lights and stuff and get a few hours of sleep at night. But like a supercharged assassin, he left no evidence at any crime scene, and he didn't get a single speeding ticket. <laughs> okay, I have a question. Yeah, go and ahead. I don't know. So this thing is called Massive Killer or Massive Hoax yeah. or whatever. So in Ainsworth's mind, who's pulling the hoax? Henry Lee Lucas or law enforcement? You know, it's an interesting title, I think. Uh-huh. He, I think ultimately it's Henry Lee Lucas but it's pretty clear that the writers believe that it was really about this sort of synergistic relationship between the task force and Henry Lee Lucas. Like Henry Lee Lucas could have intended to perpetrate the hoax, right? That Mm -hmm. could have been his intention, but there was no way he could do that without significant help from the task force and the people running the task force. So he is saying, fine, Henry lied, right? And that is the headline, Mm -hmm. except for lots of people lie and they don't get anywhere, right? It takes a body to not investigate, to push theories, to do these Yeah, to buy in for their own particular gain. Right, and that's like the... mm, the crux of like culpability in this whole story is like I said, 
with the task force, they say, we're not an investigative task force. We're a coordinating task force. We're not going to take responsibility if these investigations don't pan out. And people are saying Henry Lee Lucas would have never had the platform or the access to be able to confess to as many murders he did without the task force, mm-hmm. you know? So that that's, does that make sense? Yeah. 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 It's a weird, it is a weird word. It doesn't feel like a hoax. Yeah. For a great writer. Come on, Ainsworth. Like <laughs> pull out a dictionary, you know, find it the thesaurus or whatever they're called. You I know? think it's a way of injecting the feeling of culpability in this story without actually accusing someone. Yeah. In this way. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. That's how I read it. Yeah. So back to the articles. Mm-hmm. The, I think one of the biggest things that they proved is just this insane popcorning across the country. And they were like, you know, just something like, oh, I'm going to go from Austin, Texas to Nebraska and then back to Austin, Texas and then to Seattle and then back to Dallas and then, you know, <laughs> yeah. San Francisco. Like even it, it wouldn't match any sort of natural meandering pattern. Right. It's like just breakneck speeds for no reason, crisscrossing the country when you could have killed a bunch of people in one spot and just came back. You know what I mean? It's also funny too, just thinking about the way you described him as a character. Yeah. Right. Like he just seems like he's just chilling. You know? I mean, he seems like he's just chilling and same with <laughs> Like you'd have to be like so compulsively driven. Yeah. Don't eat. Don't enjoy anything. Never sleep. And just erratic. You know, yeah. it, it's such a it's a rabbit. Shave your eyelids off of your face. <laughs> yeah. So this went on and on with mm. example after example of Henry being documented in places across the country from where he was supposed to be murdering. They even made this amazing chart visually showing the hundreds of contradictions in the task force timeline of Mm -hmm. murders attributed to Henry, which was hilariously aggressive and effective. It was like, I mean, it's great, but it was just so like, wow. See, I think that's what's going on. I think he is, he's like, doesn't want to be like anti-law enforcement or anti-cop in this situation or anti whatever this investigative thing is. Would you call it task force? But clearly he's saying like, you guys are, are believing this? Like you guys are obviously like lying that you know you don't believe this. That is what this author is doing. Yeah. And yeah. it's humiliating. Yeah. I mean, if you really look at it, he's like, look at what this is. Yeah. This is ridiculous. Yeah. That just seems much more like a conspiracy theory cover up to help certain people more than it seems like a hoax. I don't know. I don't want to talk about hoax anymore. Okay, great. Okay, <laughs> okay, 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 okay. I rest my case. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> so the reporters believe he certainly didn't kill 600 and he didn't kill the 210 cleared in his name mm-hmm. and that the whole hoax was supported by this codependent relationship between Henry and the task force. There was this need to clear murder cases and if Henry kept doing it, he'd stay off death row. And it was all made possible with the task force tactics because, like we said, because they were a coordinating team and not an investigative team, they didn't have to worry so much about the investigation part. They just had to clear murders. And that led to tactics like we talked about in the last episode, stuff like showing Henry photographs of crime scenes and then Henry magically knowing the details of the crime scenes when he's interviewed. And 
it looks like the task force developed its timeline of the murders by just sort of random guesses. The task force had this big old map up on the wall full of pins and dates marking the murders that Henry had confessed to. And investigators with an open murder case from across the country could call up Georgetown and just see if Henry had a particular day open. And if it didn't have very much going on, the task force would just plug the case in as a possibility. So this is what Ainsworth said led to this crazy pinball structure of the murder timeline. Unreal. Also, just to add a little insult to injury, in the same slate of articles, the journalist got task force leader Sergeant Bob Prince admitting that Henry and Otis would get carried away sometimes. Mm-hmm. So this didn't make it out into the universe until um, this whole expose happened. Yeah. But I guess in addition to the murder confessions, the guys said that they were a part of a cult called the Hands of Death. And that would be a 500-strong nationwide organization that traveled internationally to take on contracted killings and then eat the people they killed. Great, just a quick little drive across seas to Japan. <laughs> and all the hits were organized via postcard, so it was okay. like an assassin's um, <laughs> book <organization>. club. <laughs> Like pen pals. <laughs> and also, Henry had told the task force that he never used poison in his murders because he had learned his lesson with Jonestown. He said he hand-delivered the cyanide to Jim Jones in Guyana in 1978 that led to the mass death of 918 members of the People's Temple cult. God, 918. Yeah, the Jonestown Massacre. Yeah. Which, have you I know about yet? it, but I know about it. I think we watched a documentary about it or something, but it's just, that number is just, staggering. that's staggering. Well, it was all due to Henry yeah. Lee Lucas so add this to going that. to South uh-huh. America and giving them. Great. So add that to the 600. So really he's um, responsible for 1,500. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So. Here we Great. go. So that was obviously they didn't ne- never gave that the light of day. I mean, they did it, this article. <laughs> I think they like. Re- I mean, at the time when they confessed it, the task force was like, "Okay, we're just going to ignore that part." <laughs> From what I've read, I didn't. I don't think that. Yeah, I don't think that that was something that uh-huh. they wanted to say. Uh-huh. But they definitely told like Ainsworth. Oh man, yeah. Sometimes <laughs> you get really carried away, and then Ainsworth published it. So. <laughs> Uh, of course, the articles made a huge splash. Batwell and the task force, Colonel Jim Adams, if you remember at the DPS, mm-hmm. and the Texas Rangers all closed ranks against any criticism, painting Vic Fiesel, who is still running this grand jury investigation, mm-hmm. and Hugh Ainsworth as anti-law enforcement and people that no one should listen to, sloppy reporting, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. But a question mark now hung over around 200 murder cases that would potentially have to be reopened. That summer, Detective Linda Irwin's fake case was exposed in the press, showing a clear example of Henry just straight up giving false confession and adding just more fuel to this controversy. Oh, so that wasn't even a part of the of the big Ainsworth expose? No. So she wasn't even working with him? Nobody knew. 
She just did that on her side. Yeah. So you had uh-huh. back to back. We're investigating you in this grand jury thing, yeah. Ainsworth article, and then it comes out in the press of this fake Dallas case that they did because they knew he was lying. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's just another example of Henry making false confessions, adding more fuel to this controversy. And also that summer of 1985, while Hugh Ainsworth was out of town for work, his house was burglarized. Someone broke in and stole a bunch of his taped interviews with Henry Lee Lucas. Mm. Nothing else, just that. Mm. Ainsworth was not obviously a popular guy with law enforcement at the time, so he decided not to report the break-in. He kept it a secret. He told just a couple very close friends. But the next time he ran into Sheriff Boutwell, the sheriff told him he was really sorry to hear about the burglary. Oh, okay. So things are tipping now into some different dark waters, but it was nothing compared to what Vic Fiesel was about to experience. And next episode, we talk about Vic Fiesel, the FBI, conspiracies, and Frida Powell, a.k.a. Becky. (sighs) Yeah, I know. We haven't even gotten into the actual murders. Yeah. What he actually did. Well, we did in the first episode. Oh, my God. Poor Grandma Kate. (laughs) Why you got to bring that up? Okay, okay. (laughs) Ah, The epic era continues. Thank you so much for listening to Muriel's Murders. Muriel did all the research, writing, and hosting. I did all the recording, editing, and post-production. This podcast was recorded in our living room. To help support the podcast and to unlock exclusive episodes, please sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Muriel's Murders. If you enjoyed this episode, it would be amazing for Muriel and I if you texted it to a loved one in your life. Actually, go back and text them part one. If you're like oh, this yeah. far in, don't just be Girl, like- do not be texting me. <laughs> part three <laughs> share part one no or just a random old episode that you like but also not like part four of the bitter blood series or something you know what i'm saying okay anyway your support, <laughs> your support keeps us inspired and motivated uh <laughs> to help the show please leave us review on apple podcasts rating and following us on spotify it's also a good thing so is connecting with us on social media <laughs> plus we love hearing from you our dms are open slide right in or shoot us an email <laughs> if you want to do that you can find all the information and the links in the show notes of this episode or you can go to our fancy website, MurielsMurders.com. Our music is by Mario Castellini. Find him on Instagram at Castellini Beats. That's it. Okay. See you soon. Bye. Bye.